All right, so today we're continuing, we're in the parables of Jesus, and uh, this is part four. So if you've missed any of them, you can catch up. We've got them all on Facebook and uh, YouTube and several uh, audio uh, platforms, and welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Uh, right now you're on Facebook or YouTube, so I'm going to ask you to get involved by liking, by sharing, by subscribing to our YouTube channel, by getting notifications, and by using your comment section, all right? If we get some, some comments, we'll try and publish them in the stream if we have time, but I've got a big, big slideshow to show you today, so I need you to really, really sit tight for this one. This is the, uh, the parable of the lost son or sometimes we call it the prodigal son. How many of you have heard this story before? Raise your hand. Anybody you've never, ever heard the story of the prodigal son before? Raise your hand if you haven't heard of it. It's okay. It's, if you haven't heard of it, you haven't heard of it. Young people at the back, you've heard this story before? You have? Okay. So you hesitant. Okay. So this is like the most emotional uh, parable that Jesus told. It grips people uh, when they hear it and when they read it because people identify with the different characters in some way in the story. Um, and the story is in Luke chapter 15, but we're actually going to go through the whole chapter of Luke 15. The prodigal son starts, I think it's around verse, uh, verse 10 or something like that, but um, we're going to read the whole chapter for context. Yes, the whole thing. So if you have a Bible on hand, you want to flip over to Luke chapter 15, electronic Bible, whichever it is, uh, but you are going to read a whole chapter <laughs> today, but I'm going to make it really engaging and really fun for you. Um, now, the problem with this story is the title, uh, and we call it the prodigal son. That's probably the most famous title that we use for this story. Sometimes we call it the lost son. That may be a little more apropos, but the title of the thing is a problem because what happens is, the, and this happens with many of the parables, Good Samaritan, like last week, it's really not that good of a title for the story of the Good Samaritan, right? A better, better title might be, Who is My Neighbor? That might be a better title for that story. But we call it the Good Samaritan in our nice, pretty, edited Bibles with our chapters and verses and our titles and all those things. They, people didn't have that back then. And I think if Jesus were titling this story, he wouldn't have called it the prodigal son at all. He may have called it the lost son. But what, it, what happens when we call it the prodigal son is we focus on the prodigal son. And usually what we do is we say, we identify with the prodigal son. He did a terrible, uh, terrible thing, asked for his inheritance before his father passed away. What a horrible thing he did. He went out into the, into the world, as it were. He, he lived wildly. He lost it all. He, there was a famine. He, he comes to his senses. He comes back to his father, and his father forgives him and brings him back into the household. And, and we say the prodigal son, and we identify with that, that, that youngest son. There's two sons in the story. And we feel like, oh, God will forgive me, and, you know, thank God for his forgiveness. And, oh, yeah, I've, I've gone out into the world, and now I've turned my life around. And we really identify with the prodigal son, and that's, that's okay. That's, that's one way of looking at it. But that is not the way that they looked at it back then. Uh, that's a real, that, that's a one angle of the story, but there's a, a much deeper meaning that we often miss because sometimes the title makes us zero in on that. So just a tip for you, just because the, your Bible editors have a title for a section in the Bible or a story in the Bible, that wasn't in the Bible, okay? That's a pretty title that we've put there to try and help you um, to try and organize the Scripture. The Scripture if you look at the manuscripts that we actually have of the Bible, they're not all 
all uh, organized for us in the fashion that we have today. And so when we translate into modern languages, we say, okay, let's give this a title. What, would, what do we think the title would be? Sometimes those titles can be very misleading and can take you on a rabbit trail, okay? So that's a bit of the story with the prodigal son. Um, and in the story, you're going to see really two groups of people. And that's, that's important to look at the context. We're going to look at it in a moment of this story. You've got two groups of people who Jesus is going to tell a story to. He's with tax collectors and sinners, we'll be told in, in Luke's gospel. Um, and these are, this one category of people. And tax collectors, we've talked about a little bit, not well liked in that time, in that culture, in, in Israel, and in, in Judea, provinces there. These people were working for Rome, uh, but many of them, uh, or some of them, were Jewish people who basically were viewed as traitors because they're collecting taxes for Rome. So the tax collector was not a good thing or a sinner. So you have this group of people. And then you have these other kinds of people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we have met these folks several times before over the last number of weeks. And the Pharisees were the ultra-religious, ultra-holy. The word Pharisee comes from a word that means separate. So they lived sanctified lives. They were the model of Judaism. Uh, they, were, they were regarded as the spiritual people. They knew their their. Old Testament, they knew the law. Then you have these people, the teachers of the law. And again, same kind of person, really. And these are people who taught the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, uh, help me, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Yeah, these books we don't like, right? These are, or at least some of them we don't like. These, be, these are experts in this. So uh, you've got two very different kinds of people in the context here. And what happens is, Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So he, if you look at the broader context of Luke there, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's in these villages and these towns. He's probably in a small town. He's probably in, a, in some type of a home. Uh, and homes back then in those places and those towns would be enlarged as the fathers, uh, as the father had children. They would add additions to the home. You had all kinds of little rooms here and there and everywhere. And then you kind of had a bit of an outer courtyard, uh, almost like a place where you do a barbecue, I suppose. And this could be where Jesus is addressing, in a public sense, uh, these people. And he's he's seems to be eating with uh, groups of people who the Pharisees and the teachers of the law don't like. And so the context of this amazing story that Jesus is about to tell is just that. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, you know, they're muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Big problem for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, because the law forbade that. You couldn't do that. If you, if you, you're supposed to live a separate life. Their favorite passage would be something like, come out and be separate, says the Lord. You can't eat and, and commiserate and have fellowship with sinners and tax collectors because they're unholy. And they're unclean. Come out and be separate. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And this man is making all kinds of claims. This man is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He's making claims to deity. And here he is eating with sinners and tax collectors. This is the broader context. And what's at stake here is the picture of God that's going to be presented in this story. So uh, the Pharisee or the teacher of the law would view God this way. Uh, God is kind, yes. God is merciful, yes. To those who repent, to those who turn to him, 
to those, let, let the wicked man forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, he will freely pardon from Isaiah. Um, God is kind. God is merciful. Absolutely. God loves you. Absolutely. But if you love him, if you repent, if you turn to him, Jesus has an expanded view of God. And this is the problem. For Jesus, sure, God is kind and merciful to those who repent. God loves those who repent, sure. But he's also kind and merciful to the ungrateful and to the wicked. You see this in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says this. He's kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. This would really be a... a controversial thing to believe about God. Uh, fast forward to the 21st century, it's, it's an aside, but it will help you understand uh, the, the way that God is presented in Islam is very similar to what the Pharisee and the teacher of the law believed about God in the first century. Very similar. In Islam, Allah will love you. He will be merciful to you. He will be kind to you. If you love him, but to the ungrateful and to the wicked, there is judgment, you see. And this is the view, more or less, that the Pharisee or teacher of the law, the first century, would have of God. And here you have Jesus saying, God is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. So to the question or to the muttering that's going on with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, he obviously hears this. And so he's going to tell not one story, but he's going to tell three stories to try and help them to see something. It's going to bother them, but uh, he's going to do it. And he's going to tell the story of a shepherd who lost a sheep. It's 99 sheep and he loses one. He's going to tell the story of a woman who lost a coin. She's got 10 coins. She loses one. And he's going to tell the story of a father who lost a son. It's two sons. He loses one. And this is what Jesus uh, says. And I'm going to illustrate this with, with pictures here, okay? So you're going to have to track with me online here. So Jesus tells them this parable. This is parable number one. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. This guy, this sheep shepherd, he is really, really sharp. The shepherd, the sheep follow the shepherd, and there's a really close bond that they have, but suppose he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? That's what they would do. And the people would recognize this and say, of course, that's what the shepherd does. He knows every single sheep. And so he will go and he will find that straggler who went off and got lost. And he's looking for his sheep and he's going to look until he finds that sheep. He's going to go all over the place and there he sees something off in the distance. And sure enough, he sees the little guy, you know, kind of in the rocks there. He's not looking. He's just sitting there. He's probably dying, the little sheep. He's, he's completely lost. And doesn't he go and find the sheep? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Look how happy he is. He found his sheep. And he goes and puts it on his shoulders. And he goes home. And then what does he do? He's going to call his friends. He's going to call his neighbors. And he's going to say, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. In this, and Jesus says, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be rejoicing in heaven. In heaven. Over one sinner, remember, the Pharisees and teachers of the law are saying, this man eats with sinners and welcomes them. Jesus says, you see how happy the guy is? He's going to throw a, a celebration. Why? He found his lost sheep. He, he's filled with joy. This is what happens in heaven when one sinner repents. More than 99 righteous persons 
who do not need to repent. So question you've got to ask yourself, did the sheep repent? Yes or no? How many say yes? The sheep repented. You have your hand up, but I don't know how a sheep can repent. Okay, I might challenge that view. How many of you think the sheep didn't, re- he didn't repent, did he? How many of you say, no, he didn't repent, he's lost. Right, so, so who's rejoicing? Is the sheep rejoicing? No. Who's rejoicing? The shepherd. The shepherd is rejoicing. Why? Because he found his lost sheep. Now, just, just pause for a second. All of you in this room have experienced loss. Loss. Some losses are bigger than other losses. Last two years are years of loss. Oof. People have lost. People have lost loved ones. People have lost jobs. Uh, people have lost, I mean, their sanity. Like, there's a lot of loss in the last couple of years. Isn't it nice when you find something that you lost? Is, doesn't something happen in your soul when you find that thing that you lost? When it was very, very significant to you, you found it. That kind of joy, Jesus says, that's what you've got in heaven. It's a supernatural place. It, it, it's another story, but it, or another uh, sermon maybe, but it implies that somehow, you know, maybe the heavenly beings know when there's repentance by somebody here. Interesting. But it shows how, how valuable repentance is and how, how much joy it causes even in heaven. But the sheep didn't repent here. And the joy is, I found what was lost. And so there's joy in this shepherd. You with me so far? Okay. And so Jesus is going to tell another story. And you've got little cute pictures here, all right? So suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. Look at her. She's got it on her, her, her headpiece there. She's got her 10 silver coins. And she loses one. Look, there's one missing. See? And she loses one. Doesn't and look at she shocked. She looks, she says, I lost my silver coin. Oh no. She was showing it off to her, her friends before, and now she's lost her coin. Well, doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully? Until she finds it. I mean, she wants that coin. She lost that coin, and she wants to find that coin. In a house like that, you did these, these brooms made out of sticks, all these crevices all over the place. It would take a miracle to find a, a little, a little uh, uh, coin like that. And she's looking, and she's looking for her coin. And then she finally finds her coin. And when she finds it, doesn't she call her friends and her neighbors? Look, she found her coin, and she calls them, and she says, Rejoice with me. Look, I found it. I found my coin. Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. So, question for you. Did the coin repent? No. Coins don't repent. They just get lost. So, and who is rejoicing? The lady. And why? She found what was lost. Right? You say, well, duh. No, not duh. We haven't even gotten to the prodigal son yet. The so-called prodigal son. All right? So, and Jesus, same thing. In the same way I tell you. In the same way. No, the coin didn't repent. But in the same way, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Supernatural place. Over one sinner. You're asking, why do I eat with sinners and welcome sinners? Well, there's rejoicing in heaven. Rejoicing with the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents. So did the sheep repent? No. Did the coin repent? No. Well, now Jesus is going to make it even more personal with the story of the lost son. 
There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, the younger one, Father, give me my share of the estate. Whoa. Okay, pause right there. That is a very, very brazen and very arrogant and very cruel and very short-sighted and very sinful request that he's making of his father. Because you don't get the estate, that would be the, the, the home, uh, which had been enlarged over the years and which was part of the community, served the community, sons are in there, their families are in there. You don't get that until the owner of the home does what? Dies. And so the son, the younger son, is saying, I'm out of here. I want my share of the estate. In a sense, it's like saying to his father, I wish you were, or you are blank to me. It's like he's saying that to his father. Now, in that culture, well, in any culture, but in that culture, that's a, an extremely dishonorable and sinful and awful thing to say to one's father, but he did it, he said it, and you've got the younger guy on one side and the older son on the other, and you see the younger son, he's kind of looking off to the side there, and so he the the striking thing about the beginning here is that the father actually does it. Now, in that culture, if you had a conflict between a, a, a younger son, let's say, and a father, or a conflict of two brothers, let's say, the, the custom was that the eldest son, the firstborn son, would try and mediate the conflict. It was one of his responsibilities. Here, it's interesting. The older son does nothing. There's a rift between the younger son and the father. We don't know what the rift is, but the younger son says, I'm out of here. And uh, the father actually does it. Now, the way that it would work back then is the eldest son, the firstborn son, because he only has two kids, the eldest son, according to the Mosaic law, is supposed to get a double portion. So it would mean, in this case, the eldest son gets two-thirds of the estate, and the youngest son gets a third of it, okay? So, but the way that it worked back then is, uh, well, it's a bit detailed, a bit complicated, but the, the eldest son would have been given his two-thirds, says in verse 12, so he, the father, divided his property between them. So the eldest son gets the two-thirds, the youngest son gets the third, but the, uh, the father, because he hasn't passed away, would still live there, even though the eldest son would have control of the estate, and the eldest son wouldn't get the actual liquid, he wouldn't liquidate the estate and cash it in until the father passed away. But the younger son here, he can. So he takes the value and he cashes it in. And so, verse 13, uh, and here you have him giving him his, his money. Amazing that the father would do this, and the father doesn't challenge him. Also amazing that the elder son doesn't get involved, stays out of it, doesn't try and mediate with this awful thing. This would be an embarrassment to the family, in the community, in the town, in the village. It would be, what? He did what? He said what? The father did what? Are you kidding me? It would be a disgrace. and It was a disgraceful thing that this younger son did. And the father, he, he, he let him. He let him do it. He allowed him to make that choice. The younger son, not long after that, he got together all that he had. And he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Distant country would be the world of the Gentiles. He must have gone off to the Decapolis. He must have gone off east of the, the, the Jordan River into Gentile country, into the, you know, the Roman world. He must have gone off into there. 
and uh, you'll see why in a few moments. But here you have a you know, statue of the emperor, and whoa, he's in, the, he's in the big leagues now. And we're told that he squanders his wealth in wild living. Later on, we learn that he squandered it with prostitutes and all this kind of thing. And so he's, he's living it up. And uh, it, it, some translations say extravagant living, materialism. Um, remember the parable of the sower? And the, the sower sows the seed, and there's one kind of ground that, uh, that uh, uh, chokes the, the growth of the seed. And Jesus says that represents the deceitfulness of wealth. So here you have an example. This guy goes out and he parties. You know, it's Mardi Gras or whatever, forever, at least he thinks. After he had spent everything, not only did he lose his money, but there's a severe famine in the land. You see the little bones of the animal there in the, in the corner. Severe famine in the land. He's got a big problem. Number one, he's got no more money. He, he burned it all. He spent it all. Number two, there's a famine in the land. He's got a food problem now. And he began to be in need. So what's he do? He goes and he hires himself out to a certain citizen of that country. Again, this is probably a Gentile, uh, you know, non-Jewish area. Uh, why? Because he says, okay, uh, you can go out and feed the pigs. I'll hire you. This is your job, feed pigs. Well, that's not a Jewish job. <laughs> that's an unclean animal. That's a non-kosher animal. So he's definitely in Gentile world. He says, well, I'll work for the pig farmer. But even when he's working for the pig farmer, he, he's still hungry. He longs to fill his, his uh, uh, stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. So he's not even eating well. He's out there with the pigs. He's in a big, big mess. Big mess. Made a mess of everything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants, hired servants, that was the lowest rung on the, on the servant or slave ladder back then, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death out here in the bush. I've got myself in Gentile country. I've squandered all my inheritance. I'm starving to death. He's got people working for him. They're not his sons, not his children. They don't even live in his house. They're hired hands, and they're not starving to death. So he comes up with a plan. I will set out and go back to my father, watch, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up, and he went to his father Pause there for a moment. Um, now, we can, we can look at this and we can say, oh, you see, he's come to a place of repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Sounds like repentance. Not so fast. Uh, the phrase, I have sinned against heaven and against you, uh, it, it could be. It's, I mean, I can't prove it, but it could be. Uh, that Jesus intentionally chooses that language. That's the same language that Pharaoh used in Exodus. When the plagues start coming, Pharaoh says that to Moses. It's not repentance. He's just trying to get what he wants. And it could well be that this is just, he's just coming up with a plan here. And so, yeah, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Back in that time, if you, if you got your inheritance and you uh, spent it and lost it to Gentiles, you were banned from your home, you were banned from your community. They had a, a little ceremony. We're not so sure how developed this was in Jesus' time, but they had this little ceremony where they'd take a jar of grain or fruit and they'd throw it on the ground and smash it in front of the, the person who squandered their inheritance to Gentiles. 
And as if to say this person's no longer fruitful, they're useless in this home, they're useless in, their, in this community, get out. So I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Indeed, he's not. And he knows that if he goes back there, that's exactly what the community will say to him. Get out. You spent it on wild living and your inheritance is gone to who? Gentiles? Get out. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he says, look, if I can, if I can get this to work, I'll be able to eat. I'm not so convinced that this is repentance just yet. Remember, the coin didn't repent. The sheep didn't repent. I'm not so sure that this is repentance yet from this son. In any case, he gets up and he goes off to his father. Now, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion passion for him. He's still a long ways off, but his father sees him in the distance, and he's filled not with judgment, but he's filled with compassion for his unkind, ungrateful, wicked, sinful son. And he ran to his son. Remember what the, what the uh, shepherd did? Went out to seek the sheep. Remember what the lady with the coin did? She went and found the coin. This man is running toward his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Again, back in that culture, you squander your inheritance to Gentiles, you're cut off from the community. On the other side, it's a shame, was considered a shameful thing for a father, presumably maybe a little bit elderly, to go and run in his robes. To, it would bring shame on him. And he's going to run toward this sinful son. It, it, was, it was like he's shaming himself so that he can save his son. He wants his son back home. He's going to run to his, his son, bring his son home, quite possibly because he wants to protect the son from that ceremony that the community would do where they'd take that jar of grain and smash it and say, you're useless to this community. You're useless in this home. Get out. So here this father is showing some crazy kind of compassion. By number one, by running towards his son, but number two, by doing it so quickly. And he's, he's protecting his son from what is to come from the community. It's a, <coughs> it's a shocking uh, display of love. He's embarrassing himself. He's shaming himself to save his son and to bring him back home. Wow. So, uh, he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him, and the son said to him, watch, remember his plan, right? His plan was, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants, and, uh, you know, I'll make money uh, working for you in that way. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's the plan. But once the father runs to him and embraces him, what does he say to the father? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't continue. He doesn't add the make me like one of your hired servants. Wow. Why doesn't he continue with his plan? It could very well be that he is so touched by the compassion that his father shows him, by the, the uh, embarrassing love that he shows him, running out there, senior man, running towards his sinful son, embracing him. It could be that that kind of kindness changed the boy's plan. 
And he doesn't want to be a hired hand. He wants to be a son. And so he doesn't continue with the rest of the phrase. And the, but the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Quick, remember, if the rest of the community sees this guy, they are going to put him out. They're going to they're gonna kick him out of the community. Quick, put the best robe on him. Put it on him. Take a ring. Put it on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. These are all gestures of kindness. These are all gestures that say he is part of the family. He is part of the community. He is my son. Bring the fattened calf. Like we're going to have some big barbecue here. We're going to have a huge celebration here. Let's have a feast and celebrate, says the man. We want to have a big, big party. Remember the, the shepherd filled with joy because he found the sheep? The woman filled with joy because she found her coin. And here you have this man filled with joy because he found his son. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. In the eyes of the father, he has repented. In the eyes of the father, this is cause for celebration. I found my lost son. Meanwhile, verse 25, uh, 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 the older son, remember, he got his share of the inheritance. He got his double portion. He didn't mediate in the conflict like he's supposed to. He's, he's there working the house. He's there running things, yes. He's faithful, yes. He's out in the field. He came near the house. Curious. He's still out in the field. The father didn't call him. When the son came, when the youngest son came, the father did not call the eldest son. He, he ran toward the youngest son and said, quick, start celebrating. And even before the eldest son knows even anything about it, the celebration is on. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. What's this? So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on here? Your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. He's not a slave. This is what he says. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He's jealous. He's angry because the youngest son got something that he didn't get. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. For him, not fair, not just. Why does this man welcome sinners and tax collectors and eat with them? Verse 31, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. I mean, even in a literal sense, he already got his double portion of the inheritance Everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. End of story. No conclusion with the attitude 
of the elder brother. Hmm. Remember, you have two audiences there. You have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They are the elder brother. They would know Jesus is trying to help them to see they're behaving just like that elder brother. And then you have the sinners and the tax collectors, and they're that younger brother. Jesus even uses the word sinner in his story, right? This coin, he says sinner. The, the shepherd, he says sinner in those, both of those stories. So those are the two audiences. Those are the two kinds of people. And Jesus is trying to help them see this is the way you're behaving. The father's kindness toward the youngest son. He runs toward him in his robes. Senior guy running towards this wicked son. He doesn't, the son hasn't even said anything to him yet. He doesn't even know if the son has repented. All he knows is the son is back. He doesn't know if he's had a change of heart. He, doesn't, he just runs toward his son. His son was lost. Now he knows where his son is. He goes and finds his son. He grabs his son. And he realizes there seems to have been some repentance in this son. I am no longer worthy. To be, uh, to be called your son. I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. For the father, this is repentance. It's not a game. His kindness seems to have caused this change in the younger son. Paul would write, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Here you have an example of this. The kindness of the father produces repentance in the younger son. Ah, but does the kindness of the father produce repentance in the older brother? The question is left unanswered. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are being put into a corner here. And what Jesus is saying to them is, you want to know why I welcome sinners and tax collectors and eat with them? Because when one of them, one of them repents, it's the joy in heaven is like the joy of that shepherd. It's like the joy of that woman. It's like the joy of that father. Because I'm being kind to bring people toward repentance. Are you? You're the Pharisee. You're the teacher of the law. You're the super spiritual example. You're the people who God wants to be the example to the sinner and to the tax collector. But you don't even talk to them. You don't even spend time with them. You're not kind to them. You want me to judge them. You want God to judge them. What if the kindness of God leads them to repentance. What if your picture of God is, is only half of the picture? What if God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked as well? Whoa, this would have, this would have flipped their, their switch. They would have been totally confronted, angered, frustrated, concerned about what Jesus is saying to them, but he's pushing it right to them. They are that older brother. And the sinners are the younger son. So the question for us today, uh, yeah, which one are we? <laughs> are we the younger son or the older son? But the question for us is, do we understand the kindness of God uh, that he has shown to us? You remember the... And I like the way the artist made this guy. I'll put him back on the screen. The father, he shames himself to bring his lost son back home. Does that sound like anyone you know? What did God do when Jesus went to the cross? Jesus went to his shameful cross. God so loved the world that he... Right, so uh, that whoever 
shall not but have a right. So who's, who, who started it? Us or God? For man so repented that God sent his son? No. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were wicked, while we were in a state of sinfulness, God became incarnate in the person of Christ. God went to a cross, a shameful cross, shamed his own son. A crucifixion was a shameful death. It was an awful, unmentionable, grotesque, and shameful death. This is what Jesus did for us. We just started the period of uh, Lent, they call it, as, as we prepare for the Easter season to come. This is the story of Easter is kind of veiled in this story of the lost son. God shames himself to bring the lost home. It's not our good works and our repentance that triggers it. It's the love of God that triggers it. It's God's love and his compassion. While we're ungrateful and wicked, while we're his enemies, God becomes man in the person of Christ, dies on the cross, and is raised from the dead. And we then have a responsibility and a choice to make because of that. But it's not our repentance that triggers it. Our repentance is a response to it. Because it's God's kindness that brings us to repentance. Now, I wonder, those of you who are in the room today, those of you who are online today, and Simon, you can come up and we can, we can uh, close with this, and you can switch to a wide angle there online, uh, David, as we finish and pray here. I wonder if there are those of you, and you never heard the gospel story like this before. You never understood that. You feel like, well, I just have to be a good person and I have to, you know, do good, go to church, pray, and read my Bible, and maybe even tithe, and God will accept me. No, he won't, not because of that. God accepts you because of what he did for you in the person of Christ. You have to respond to that. You can't work your way to, to uh, get in a good place with God. You have to respond to his love expressed to you. The love of the Father who shamed himself so that he could bring you home. So, Lord, I pray for each person who's in the room today, people who are watching online. And maybe there, there are those of us, and we never processed it that way before. Uh, Lord, we're, we're taught so many things. God, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and we'll be a good Christian, we'll be a good person, and we'll go to heaven when we die. Uh, but Lord, uh, maybe today we understand it a little differently. Maybe today we just want to say to you, God, uh, we humble ourselves before you. And Lord, we're just, we're just uh, so thankful uh, for your love for us that we don't deserve for your love for us that we can't earn. No amount of repentance that we show you can earn it. Uh, but Lord, uh, uh, we recognize at the same time uh, that maybe we've been running from you. Maybe we've been squandering our, our, our lives uh, in, in crazy ideas <laughs> and in all kinds of bad decisions and all kinds of sin and all kinds of self-destruction. And Lord, we... We see what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we want to return to you and repent. Uh, Lord, maybe we're judgmental and legalistic toward people, and we look at people and we say, oh, you know, how can God love that person? They're so sinful, and they're, they're such a tax collector. Um, Lord, help us, help us to show grace to people because you've shown grace to us uh, as we start to journey toward Easter. Lord, may we have a fresh appreciation of the work of Christ on the cross for us. We pray today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord bless you today.
And uh, thank you so much for coming in. If you have kids, uh, pick them up in screen number 11. You want to help out with Ukraine, Wedlin will be over at the desk. And hope to see some of you on Wednesday or Thursday. Remember, young people, I will also send out a note to you. We're going to meet Friday night over at the studio on uh, Tash Boulevard. God bless you, everyone. Stay safe out there. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads to repentance. Your favor, Lord, is our desire. It's your beauty, Lord, that makes us stand in silence. Your love is better than